The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I think it can be really instructive um, for us about our predicament when we find, I'm assuming this is true for you too, as it is for me, when we find or catch ourselves working really hard, being really sincere, and then either somebody or we ourselves ask a very obvious question like, uh, what do I want? And we don't know. Yet we've been working really hard with the presumption that we knew what we wanted. You know, that kind of delusion where we're so in the working, into the work of life, into the doing, with the presumption that we know what we're doing, but we don't. We used to have, back in the old days, in the 90s, on the bulletin board at Common Ground in the old building, we had something for years up on the bulletin board, something like, it's an, I guess a German proverb, what's the point of running when you don't know the way? It's actually, there's a lot of wisdom in that simple statement. What is the use of running when we don't know the way? So I do wanna come back to the body tonight but to talk about the body in terms of what we want. And uh, it's actually can be a really powerful, useful step, if it's the case, to acknowledge that I don't know what I want. Right? That, that's a good, not a bad place to be, because it's honest, you know, if that's the case, that we don't know what we want. You know, and later expressions of the Buddhist teachings, they, you know, there's words like nibbana or nirvana. But uh, in the early teachings, it was more simple. The Buddha just talked about a sage, a, a wise person, was somebody who was peaceful with the conditions that were arising in the moment. A person who was relating peacefully to the conditions that were showing up in the moment. And that somebody becomes wise or a sage by practicing being peaceful with the conditions that are arising in the moment. You see, so there's that real integrity between the means and the ends. And that's useful, like, uh, because, you know, as Buddhism got more institutionalized, it sounds more institutional and more metaphysical. But we could say that to anybody, regardless of their cultural background, if they ask, like, what are we into, we could say, 
I'm into practicing being peaceful with the conditions that have already showed up in this moment. I aspire to be peaceful with the conditions that show up in my life, to have a peaceful relationship, a wise and peaceful relationship with whatever's happening in the moment. And, you know, as opposed to what, I guess? It's nice to know the contrast, like when we aren't clear-minded, whether we are deluded about some so-called Buddhist view of things, or we have a more common cultural view of happiness, you know, we want to get something. So we want enlightenment, or we want a nice house, or we want... You know, and then we fill in the blank, and then I'll be happy. So happiness, as the you know, as an acquisition of something, getting something we don't have. And the nice thing about this early Buddhist approach, or what the Buddha taught about being peaceful with conditions, you see, it's unconditional, meaning. Any moment will do. We can practice and realize the goal, the purpose of our life in any moment. Because we can practice being peaceful with any set of conditions that are showing up. Clearly some would be easier to practice with than others. And it kind of goes to this, uh, you know, this... You know, like just highlighting how we think about our body and how we think, you know, our body as a sort of placeholder for the world, inhabiting this body, inhabiting this world. We can think about the world, the body, that its purpose is to give me happiness, to provide me happiness, and then feel, feeling betrayed if it doesn't deliver. Or sometimes we think the body is here, our life is here to torment us. And so my, you know, I have to escape it. I have to somehow either escape it or fix it or control it or defeat it. I don't want to minimize, you know, as simple as it sounds, to practice being peaceful with the conditions, to practice being peaceful with the body. I mentioned the other night, like, instead of expecting or needing a perfect bodily experience, we emphasize relating to the body that's showing up the bodily experience that's showing up, the emotional experience that's showing up, what we call the external experience that's showing up, relating to it in a beautiful way, in a peaceful way, in a wise way, easeful way. But remember, easeful in an internal sense, You know, sometimes when we're doing something really big and loud, 
but it's really the right thing to be doing in that moment, it feels really easeful and right in our hearts. Have you had that? And there are times when outwardly we're sort of like look really relaxed or like we're allowing things to be. But internally, you know, there's no or some <coughs> reaction, some something's off or something, some movement's being repressed, suppressed. So when we say being easeful, peaceful with the conditions of the moment, that means if there's a big movement in the personality to say something, to do something, that means we're, and it feels, you know, it has the taste of compassion or has the taste of letting go, has a taste that the wisdom in the mind trusts, well then that being at ease means letting the personality move, express itself, even if it's something loud and big. I mean, it's, it's useful to remember because it's such a shadow in Buddhism about passivity. I mean, the Buddha was radical. And look at the effect he's had in the world. These teachings, teaching for 45 years, living a very radical lifestyle. You know, we might think, well, that was not so radical back then. But no, the whole thing was radical then. In many different ways, it was radical. I mean, he was a profound activist. And, you know, they mythalize... Is that how you say it? Mythalize? How do you say it? Mythologize. Mythologize, thanks. They mythologize this sort of debate that went on, the Buddha, went on in the Buddhist mind, um, you know, about whether to teach or not, whether to be an activist or not or whether just to sort of hang out in the bliss of awakening, and uh, or to teach, you know, and they, as they, the legend or the myth goes, you know, he thought, oh, it would be tiresome to go teach. They won't get it. And, uh, I mean, who knows what actually went on in the Buddhist minds, in mind, but the point is, there was a person who came to understand something about the mind and he spoke up. And he, he, you know, in a wholehearted way, he gave his life. It was just uh, a stream of compassionate action. And so, this example of being peaceful with conditions, like, People didn't necessarily like what he had to say. There were lots of examples that were recorded, probably many that weren't recorded, where there was pushback. There was one time when uh, they were just, uh, the community where the the Buddha and the monks, other monks were, maybe nuns too, I don't know, but uh, they were just being mistreated. 
And some of the other monks said to the Buddha, we should go somewhere else. And the Buddha said, well, no, this is a good place for us to be. You know, just, there, or I think he, you know, again, one of these legends that the Buddha kind of had some psychic abilities and realized as bad as it is, it will only be worse somewhere else. So let's just stay here. And he had this, you know, stereotypic evil cousin who was out to get him and conspired in different ways to kill him and take over the Sangha. So, just to, the example that, the you know, as a myth, as a legend, as a teaching, that the Buddha was peaceful with conditions, but his conditions weren't easy. Right? The choices he made, he could have probably hung out with the people who adored him, you know, who would give them their best in some tropical paradise until he got old and died. This is from uh, Tony Packer, this uh, wonderful teacher. She's dead now. Started out or got trained as a Zen teacher, but then rejected labels. Um, sometimes would refer to herself as an awareness teacher and had a place up near Rochester, New York called, I think it was called Springwater. There's several books, at least two, maybe three, um, that you can get that are quite good, I think. What is this work? She asks. The essence is to come upon a profound kind of listening and openness that reveals the intense power and momentum of our human conditioning and how we are caught up and attached to ideas about ourselves and each other and in terms of the discussion tonight, our bodies, right? ideas about our body, how violently we defend these ideas, not just individually but collectively, and how this defense keeps us isolated from each other and from ourselves. Right? Our ideas, not just about each other, but our, even our ideas about our body and our attachment to our ideas about our body or about the present moment keep us forever distant from our life, our life in the body, our embodied life, our life in this moment. The other aspect of this listening is to come upon an inner, outer silence, stillness, spaciousness in which there is no sense of separation or limitation outside or inside. Now, I, I like this because it's easy to misunderstand the second piece. You know, when we start talking about presence, start talking about the Buddha, it can seem like we're talking about something that is apart. It came up last night a little bit, that this stillness, this silence, this clear presence is somehow like can exist somewhere not in this world of embodiment. 
This is uh, from Eckhart Tolle, who wrote a very popular book, The Power of Now. Maybe some of you read it. I think it's a, quite a good book. Um, he's not a Buddhist, but he's teaching the Dharma in his own way, for sure. And in this chapter, um, he writes, But the main teaching is that of presence itself, which has no past to it, no future, no time. That field of presence is the teaching and the true teacher. It dissolves time in you. It dissolves the conditioning of the mind, which is also time. And it dissolves the conditioned entity, the me, which is also time. It probably means like bound by time or time bound. It also dissolves the suffering that is accumulated, including what I call the pain body, the accumulated suffering from the past. All of that in the presence of presence begins to dissolve. And that's the true teaching. But where do we find this presence? Right? It, it almost seems, you know, with Tony Packer and Eckhart Tolle are saying this, presence is somewhere else. But we find it right here, in the moment, in the experience of embodiment, in the mess of emotion, in the... Carol sent me a note about the unbearable complexity of, I would say, embodied existence, or we could say the unbearable complexity of community life, or the unbearable complexity of loving another human being, or even the unbearable complexity of having a cat. I get into long arguments, I mean, speaking about the embodiment in the wider sense, about, you know, how the whole pet industry, pet industrial complex, <laughs> how much suffering, unbelievable suffering. I mean, you can take it from any angle. Let me just do a little riff here. This is my, you know, just pet food or pet feces, let alone all the pets that are killed because there are no homes for them or all the pets that are suffering intensely because they're being mistreated. People don't know how to take care of them or just don't have the enough health to have their own to be able to take care of another being. Let alone all the, the cats like ours that go outside, all the other creatures that have no defense against the hunting skills of a well-fed cat <laughs> that has the unfair advantage of coming home at night sleeping in a warm place and getting, you know, organic food, you know, of whatever it's willing to eat, we give it to him. <laughs> and, you know, when he does get infections and this, you know, we have a veterinarian come to the house so we he doesn't have to experience the stress of getting in the cage and in the car and being driven to the <laughs> Dr. Rutsanaya does home visits. And, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of 
other beings that could use our help, but they're not cute and fuzzy. <laughs> and uh, what's that? We're inscrutable <laughs> that in a way that cats are. That makes them charming to us, right? The sort of perfect entities to sort of take care of some of our emotional needs. So this uh, presence, this freedom, this being peaceful with conditions, it really needs the unbearable complexity of our lives, our embodied lives. It's the only place where awakening makes sense. Otherwise, it's like awakening theoretically in a place that isn't unbearably complex or difficult or uncertain, well, that's, that's not a very impressive thing to be relating peacefully to that. But it is impressive to be a human being with a body, an aging body, with a conditioned mind, conditioned by culture, in relationship in all the ways we humans are in relationship and to be awake, intimate, you know, and relating peacefully. And even if in any moment the mind is really losing it and some ancient conditioned habit or not so ancient conditioned habit to react to hit back, to close down, to freak out, even though that might get triggered, it's no problem because we can relate to that peacefully too. I mean, this is the thing about this practice. It doesn't matter, you know, I don't know what to call it, but how far we've descended into hell into unskillful action, unskillful thinking, unskillful, you know, way of conceiving ourselves, conceptualizing our situation, how dark, how reactive, how mean-spirited, how needy we are. In the next moment, that presence which needs this embodied world to really come, to really blossom. That presence, that wise presence, wise mindfulness, mindfulness wisdom, awareness, it can relate peacefully. It can include. This is the the amazing thing about this practice, it's not that we are here to learn how to not lose it, or we're here to somehow go beyond anger. We're here to know how to relate skillfully with anger and with the ways that our mind, our heart and body shut down. And when we get good at relating skillfully, peacefully 
with all of what we might call, you know, afflictive emotions, it's even harder, it takes even more time for most of us to learn to relate skillfully to what's beautiful and expansive and full of love and full of forgiveness. It's like, it's interesting, I talked to a few people today about that somehow we don't always trust or feel deserving of that kind of space or that kind of love or that kind of freedom. Oh, I can't be free. Oh, I can't love like that. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll share some from this um, very important discourse the Buddha gave about uh, mindfulness of the body. I mentioned, I shared some, not of the sutta, but some of what's in the tradition about how important the Buddha said mindfulness immersed in the body was. Because it is our most available, concrete uh, doorway into our life, this experience of embodiment. All the kinds of, you know, beauty and all the kinds of horror that we see in the world around us has its own expression in various ways here in the body. Like I mentioned last night, you know, the mind has colonized the body. I mean, we could talk about some of the things that go on, the exploitive and hateful and beautiful things that happen in the world and and map those same things out in terms of the mind and body's relationship. The way suffering is ignored. The way people or other creatures are being oppressed, being neglected. The way Nature is so intelligent, amazing, mind-blowing. We see it right in the body. Isn't it amazing? I mean, it's so commonplace, but I still find it amazing how like little scratches and other injuries heal. My... I had a kind of a stressful year, the year my father died. This is about five years ago. I joke, I'm recording this, but I'll say it anyway. You know, I had hemorrhoids for about 15 months, almost every day. It was, you know, and he was dying, and a really close friend, our former um, office manager at Common Ground, was dying of breast cancer, and and uh, we were buying a retreat property, and I was starting to teach, I think, at IMS at the time, and. And yeah, it was just a hard time. And then right after my dad died and we were, the family was taking care of the business and clearing out his condo, um, I hurt my knee. And, you know, I, so at the time it was like 55, I guess, something like that. And uh, I couldn't sit cross-legged for a while. 
And I was thinking, okay, so this is this may be it, you know. <laughs> about like never again will I sit cross legged, you know, and I was using a bench and that wasn't really that good either. And uh But it was just, you know, because knees are amazing things. And and I wasn't able to give it a rest because I, you know, I have to perform <laughs> being a meditator, right? And uh, so even if I couldn't sit cross-legged, I have to kneel a lot because I wasn't going to use a chair. <laughs> and uh, even though I do when I'm sitting in retreat, but... But... It, but just to, the intelligence of how the body and mind could create whatever space was needed for that healing to happen. You know, I had a lot of people look at it, no one could really figure out what was going on or what the problem was. And, you know, I always sort of went back and forth. Like, I never figured, it's not like I figured out this is sort of the point I'm making. It's not like I somehow cleverly figured out how to help the knee heal. You know, it figured it out. I probably did more, got more in the way than helped by all the different things I, I played with or tried. And there are just so many examples of the body's resilience and intelligence yeah, maybe, you know, uh, I was reading some of Reggie Ray's stuff. He's written a lot about um, enlightenment in the body. You might check him out. He's uh, in the Shambhala tradition. But he has a couple books that are specifically about the body and practice. And he makes this point about, and it and it really is true, it's like the thinking mind is probably the least intelligent thing around. <laughs> right? And that sort of activity of the body, nature, the nature in the body, it has, you know, who knows how many millions of years of integrated lived experience wired into it. So who are we going to trust? So it's interesting that the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness immersed in the body, mindfulness of the body, it's, I think the best way, instead of thinking like, oh, I'm going to learn how to be with the body, it's, it's really more about purifying the view and letting the body be the body instead of like somebody who owns this body or somebody who's using this body as a vehicle or somebody who's in the body. Right? We're really, the practice is actually undoing the wrong ideas the mind has about the body so the mind can stop colonizing, oppressing the body. That's what mindfulness the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness of the body. Now, we may not initially think of them in this way, but I, I really, the more I've studied and reflected on these teachings, I really uh, 
have come to understand it in this way. So there's always a great beginning to these talks, right? So there's a bunch of monks at Jetta's Grove, the monastery that Anathapindaka offered the Sangha, the nuns and monks. There's a famous story about that, which I won't go into tonight. But it was evidently a very beautiful place, and he spent a lot of money to buy it, to give it, to offer it to the monks and nuns. And some of the, uh, this, as this story goes, some of the monastics were having a Dharma discussion after their daily meal and said things like, Isn't it amazing, friends? Isn't it astounding the extent to which mindfulness immersed in the body when developed and pursued is said by the Blessed One, the Buddha, who knows and sees, the Worthy One, the Rightly Self-Awakened One, <laughs> to be of great fruit and great benefit. Right? So someone said that, and then this discussion came to no conclusion. Like, they knew, because they were paying attention, that the Buddha made a big deal of mindfulness and immersed in the body, but they didn't understand why he was making such a big deal about it. They couldn't come to a conclusion, like, why was he always talking about mindfulness immersed in the body? Sure enough, the Buddha showed up a little later in the afternoon, and he asked, for what topic are you gathered together here? What was the discussion that came to no conclusion? And they said, they explained, you know, that they were talking about mindfulness and immersed in the body and they couldn't come to any conclusion. And so the Buddha, this is often, at least as they recorded these teachings, he would ask a question and then answer his own question. And how is mindfulness immersed in the body developed? And how is it pursued so as to be a great fruit and great benefit? There is the case where a practitioner having gone to the wilderness, the shores of Lake Elysian, <laughs> to the shade of a tree or an empty room, sits down, sitting upright, setting mindfulness to the fore, always mindful one breathes in, mindful one breathes out, and tracking the movement of the breath. This is the first. There are many instructions for mindfulness of the body, but this is the first one. Tracking the breath going in and out, clearly enough to know whether that was a long breath or that was a short breath in or that was a long breath out or that was a short breath out. It's not about whether it was long or short. It's about having enough clear comprehension to be able to discern. Now, how does this purify the view of the body? It just seems like a concentration exercise. But the view, what's the normal view of the breath? Oh yeah, I know the breath. I know the breath. Why would I have to pay attention in this ongoing, wholehearted way, this not forgetting way? Why would I have to do that? Well, because we have to purify the view that our thoughts are more important than being intimate with the breath. This is a big one. This first instruction, and there, there's you know, about five more instructions for mindfulness of the body, because this is a huge hoop. Isn't this hard? I find this very hard to do, to just to be with one in-breath. I can do one in-breath, but then to follow that with being with that out-breath, that gets harder. And then to do the next in-breath, to do one and a half breaths, to care enough, to think that 
being intimate, clearly aware of the breath is more important than my thoughts and that, whatever that would be, 15 seconds of an in and out and an in-breath. That's about my limitation most of the time, right? With no wavering in the attention. So what does that say about our unconscious view in terms of how we evaluate or rate thoughts versus being intimate with the breath. It's not about the breath, of course. The breath is just sort of a stand-in for life as it is, the world, the body, reality, as opposed to the abstraction of our thoughts. Right? Because that's what thoughts are. They are a mental construction that we mostly forget are a mental construction. Skillful thoughts are mental constructions that we know are mental constructions, so we're not deluded by them. And unskillful thoughts, unskillful thinking, are thoughts that have constructed a reality, an abstract reality, but we don't realize it. So we, the mind, takes it that construction to be reality. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, we can go from one constructed reality to a completely different constructed reality thought, right? And it's like they sort of bump right up against each other and it's totally incongruent. But our mind has no problem with the inconsistency, you know, in this bubble to this bubble. And we're in this reality, and then we're in this reality. And it doesn't occur to them, we're so seduced by the bubble, whatever the thought, whatever meaning the thoughts construct, we don't notice that. This is why the first step is, can the mind have a devotion to the body, to Dhamma, the way it is to nature with enough wholeheartedness that it has to drop for moments at least its addiction to the meaning that thoughts construct. Are we willing to be with one in-breath and then one out-breath and one in-breath and one out-breath? Are we willing to find, can we find this wholesome desire to connect with the world as it is. This is a good part of our decades of practice. It's really like a a change of allegiance. What are we in allegiance to? And again, it doesn't have to be the breath, it doesn't have to be the body, but Generally speaking, it's the best place. And remember, the body would include all the physical senses. Seeing would work, hearing. Seeing, because it's so connected to thinking, is generally not encouraged. But hearing generally is pretty good. Sensations, whether specific sensations like the breath, or whole body, or other touch points, or fine. Smelling and tasting, you know, when they're obvious, work well. 
then here's the second instruction. So he doesn't go like some of you have studied all 16 mindfulness of breathing instructions, but this, he's just using the first set of four instructions, which I won't go through. They're basically tracking the body, or I'm sorry, tracking the breath in the body until the whole, because of this connection with nature, the breath as the sort of placeholder of nature, this willing to change allegiance from the meaning, thinking constructs, to the reality of nature, being intimate with nature. Nature has this inclusive quality. It's like when the heart opens to nature, it's not like with this nature, I'm okay with, but not this nature. Because that requires a thought about what's good and what's not good. So opening to nature has an inclusive quality. That's why the third instruction is breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. Breathing out, sensitive to the whole body. There's an inclusive, yet all. There's the, maybe the breath, the sensations of the breath are in the forefront, but the whole world of the body is right here in the periphery as I'm breathing in and breathing out. And then experiencing the calm of that. Because our thoughts, unless thoughts are uh, aiming or turning the mind toward things as they are, they're agitating. Right? So there's something calming about coming home to the world, integrating the mind and body, integrating the mind and the world. In Buddhism, actually, more than body, they use form, which has a bigger sense than body, right? The whole material form worldly existence. Then when we're able to kind of pick up that new allegiance to nature and have the calm, the next thing that, the next part of the instructions of the body, right? and remember the Buddha said, what did he say? Um, How it's pursued so as to be a great fruit and great benefit. Furthermore, when walking, the practitioner discerns, I am walking, right? Walking's being known. When standing, one discerns, standing is being known. When sitting, one discerns, sitting is being known, lying down is being known. However the body is disposed, that is how one discerns it. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute, any memories, resolves related to the worldly life of our abstracted thoughts are abandoned. With their abandoning, the mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified, centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. That little last part was also after the breath instruction too. Right, so... There's a kind of healing with each. 
And this, I'm going to read the third instruction because it's similar to the second. It's basically this integration. So not just in a more simplified version of sitting in a quiet place. Remember, under a tree in the wilderness, no one bothering you, sitting still. Can I practice hoping to nature? Oh, you can do that? Okay. Then go out into the world. Right, And so that's the same with the second. This is now the third set. Furthermore, when going forward and returning, one makes oneself fully alert when looking toward, looking away, when bending, extending the limbs, when carrying the outer cloak, upper robe, one's bowl, when eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, when urinating, defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, remaining silent, one makes oneself fully alert. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute, any memories, resolves related to the worldly life, the life, the abstract life of me and my likes and dislikes, me and my past and future, right? That is put aside, right? Because we have this other world, right? That is, he says... The worldly life is abandoned, and with their abandoning, one's mind gathers, settles, grows unified, centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. There's a different sutta, but he, they give a really powerful image, like how dedicated should we be about this mindfulness in the body, mindfulness immersed in the body. And he said, it's as if uh, there was the best entertainer, you know, Beyonce or whoever you think is the best entertainer, you know, public concert, everyone invited, great setting, but you have to carry a big bowl of oil on your head filled right to the brim. And this is the Buddha, or at least according to the suttas, this, the Buddha said, gave this example. And right behind you is a person with a sword if one drop of oil spills out, you know, so, you know, you're navigating this crowd, everyone grooving down or whatever people say these days. <laughs> and, uh, and you've got this thing and one, you know, and you're, oh, they also mentioned, the Buddha mentions that this is a person desiring life, doesn't want to die. Right? So, that's how you pay attention to the body. It's like, I don't want to leave my body. That kind of devotion, that kind of friendship, I'm not going to forget my body. I mean, it's like, um, some of you have raised children, right? You don't forget your three-month-year-old. You know, oh yeah. <laughs> Where's the kid? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm presuming, yeah, since I was talking about giving birth. Early, I mean, maybe you do, but... <laughs> it doesn't have... I mean, could we have that kind of relationship to the body? Because it matters. It's our life. Why would we forget it? That kind of... That, like... It sort of shocks us about how how spellbound we are with our mental projections. And a lot of our mental projections aren't important. I mean, think about how much we've thought about 
our president in the last, you know, number of months. Has that been helpful? Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's and there are many other things. Or me thinking about a cabin on the North Shore. Or me thinking about this or that. And there's this poor body. And, and it's not just our body. The body is just the stand-in for the whole world of joy and sorrow that could use this whole calm, unified presence, sensitive presence, deeply sensitive, like roots. I mean, that's the thing about this unification. It's emerging, it's an absorption in the body because the sense of somebody knowing the body disappears. That's the whole point of connecting and sustaining awareness is to lose a sense of somebody being the observer. So then the integration, nothing is missed. And again, you know, in certain relationships we have moments, I bet some of you who are parents have had moments with your kids or moments with your pets or moments with your partner or even moments with a group of people where there's a kind of intimacy where there doesn't seem to be normal boundaries and the sensitivity, there's a kind of communication that it's hard to explain, kind of connection that's hard to explain, but real. And so this is why the Buddha uses such a provocative image. Now what do you think, practitioners, Will that person not pay attention to the bowl of oil or let themselves get distracted outside? No, sir, the people listening to the Buddha said. I have given you this parable to convey a meaning. The meaning is this. The bowl filled to the brim with oil stands for mindfulness immersed in the body. Thus you should train yourself. We will develop mindfulness immersed in the body. We will pursue it. Give it a means of transport. Give it a grounding. We will study it, consolidate it, and set it about properly. That's how you should train yourself, right? As if it's the most important thing. And it makes sense that being intimate, being connected with life, the world, the body, what exactly would be more important than that? And again, this is not about not thinking. Thinking that directs the awareness to the world, to the body, to things as they are, is useful thinking. Thinking that helps illuminate. Like I uh, earlier this summer, I was giving talks about identity, just to sort of do a little riff. And um, it's like, you could think, well, identity is an abstraction. You know, I'm a white, straight male, or I'm a, a senior citizen now, I guess. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's a little shocking. That's the first time I've ever said that. <laughs> Even though the Association for Retired People have been sending me mailings, I think they start when you're in your mid-50s, sending you stuff So for many years now. but So we have these identities, but... These abstract concepts can illuminate something that's here and now about the body, about the way it is, 
right? So concepts can be very useful in illuminating what's not seen, what's not being connected with, or concepts can be very diluting, right? They can take sort of be a, an abstract and, in a sense, independent bubble that allows the mind to be unintegrated, to imagine this is reality, whatever the abstraction is, the thought is, whatever meaning it constructs. So the first three instructions, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the different postures, and mindfulness of daily activities, right? They're all about this purification of distraction. The biggest problem is we're distracted, like the, uh, the mind created this capacity to abstract through evolution, right, through language, and then we could create pictures with language, and then we can be confused by the pictures we create with language. And then we can get so confused by the pictures, the meaning we create with language, that we forget that they're just pictures or meaning being created with thought. So it's like an unintended consequence of this evolutionary step, because thinking has a lot of practical uses, right? So there's nothing uh, essentially wrong or dangerous with the capacity to think, but it can be misused. So the first three steps are just a way of re, uh, revaluing the present moment, revaluing the world, embodiment, things as they are, by uh, establishing the value of being connected more than any other value being connected, valuing being connected, what's happening. And the body is our doorway back to life, life energy, the world, the way it is. Then the next three instructions are are purifying um, a different sort of more subtle aspects of like latent tendencies to personalize the world of the body. And I'll talk about them tomorrow night. We'll continue this discussion about how being connected with the body transforms ignorance into wisdom. Right? So the body's purpose is to realize the body's role is the ground of freedom, to realize freedom in the experience of embodiment. And that freedom doesn't require something new, like a different body or a different life situation. It requires the transformation of our view or the uprooting of ignorance. So we're using the body and including the body of our relationships with the world to transform the ignorance in the mind or wrong view, right? The attachment to ideas. And just to give a little taste, I'll read something to end tonight from Bhante Gunaratana, 
this wonderful Sri Lankan monk, a real sparkly gem. He's taught here a couple of times, Bhante Sati, who I met after lunch, who's in charge of uh, Metta Meditation Center here and the place in Mankato, and they have a place in Chaska too. Um, he's brought Bhante Gunarata at least once and maybe twice to Minnesota, and, and uh, he has come uh, other times that I've seen him when he's been in town back in the 90s. And this is his book. He has a nice book on the Eightfold Path. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is from his book, Mindfulness in Plain English, right at the end of that book. And the chapter is titled, What's in it for you? <laughs> so he's talking about awakening. You find nothing in all that collection of mental hardware in this endless stream of ever-shifting experience, all you can find is innumerable impersonal processes which have been caused and conditioned by previous processes. Right? This is nature. And he says, there is no static self to be found. Meaning, there's nothing to be found that looks like that mental construction, me. Right? That's the ultimate gift we get from the body. We don't find, as we become intimate with the body, present with the body, not forgetting the body, the data that arises from being intimate with the body just does not support the mental construction of some static something that's separate from everything else, i.e., me or mine. So the mind, because it respects data, the mind is also a natural process. The mind simply expresses the data that's been collected. So when we have been a devoted, beloved student of the body, of the world, and therefore collecting the reality, the data of the reality of the body, the mind will respect the data and it will abandon the wrong idea of whatever that bubble of self we construct is because the data doesn't support it. So let me just finish these paragraphs here. You find thoughts, but no thinker. You find emotions and desires, but nobody doing them. The house itself is empty. There's nobody home. Your whole view of self changes at this point. You begin to look upon yourself as if you were a newspaper photograph, when newspapers used to exist. <laughs> <laughs> when viewed with the naked eyes, the photograph you see is a definite image. When viewed through a magnifying glass, it all breaks down into an intricate configuration of dots. Similarly, upon the penetrating gaze of mindfulness, the feeling of a self or the I or being anything loses its solidity and dissolves. There comes a point in insight meditation where the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness come rushing home with concept-searing force. You vividly experience the impermanence of life, the suffering nature of human existence, and the truth of no self. 
you experience these things so graphically that you suddenly awake to the utter futility of craving, grasping, and resistance, which is the activity of these abstractions, these bubbles that I've been talking about. He continues writing, In the clarity and purity of this profound moment, our consciousness is transformed. The entity of self evaporates. All that is left is the infinity of interrelated, non-personal phenomena, right? The dance of nature, that's me talking, which are conditioned and never changing. Craving is extinguished and a great burden is lifted. There remains only effortless flow without a trace of resistance or tension. There remains only peace and blessed Nibbana, the uncreated, is realized. I just want to add, as we end tonight, that this does not mean that somebody stops participating in life. It means that somebody can participate in life without fear, without neurotic fear, without the burden of self. Love is set free without the burden of self. Compassionate action is set free without the burden of self. everything works better, <laughs> right? I mean, we already, all of us, already have enough insight to know everything works worse when there's a strong <coughs> sense of self, right? Haven't we all directly, we have enough direct evidence that when there's a strong sense of self, right, it's hard to be a lover, it's hard to be a friend, it's hard to be an activist. You know this famous activist, uh, Saul Alensky, that got uh, President Obama into trouble when he was running because he had dinner with Alensky. He was one of, I don't know, was it, he was involved in some uh, this, um, democratic society, what was that, uh, activist? SDS. SDS, what does it stand for? Students for Democratic Society. Students for Dem I think he was part of that group. And anyway, he has this great line, he said, uh, this would be a rough paraphrase. There's something like, there's nothing you can accomplish as an activist as long as you don't care who gets the credit. Right? <laughs> and it's just like, this is the thing about involvement and engagement. It's so much more alive and nimble and creative when we're not concerned about who gets the credit, when the self isn't involved whether it's our activism is raising a kid or changing the world. So let's uh, take a moment, let go of the words. Take a couple quiet breaths together. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.